Well, if it seems to you like we just had a passage about Jesus in a storm, on the water, in a boat, it's because we did. Mark does sort of dive right in, it seems, to the redundancy of something that it feels like the disciples should have learned. Now, we have to remember that everything Jesus did wasn't just as a teacher. There was a lot he did as a teacher. He was a rabbi. He had his disciples. They were students. And so he was teaching them all the time, to be sure. That said, it doesn't mean that we interpret everything as what's the lesson that was there. There are some things Jesus was doing that they would learn from, but they had power in and of themselves without them being lessons. hope that makes sense. In other words, when Jesus would encounter somebody who was sick, there was benefit in just healing them, not just what everybody would learn from the fact that he was healing them. Now, sometimes he wanted to heal on the Sabbath in order to make a secondary point or maybe even the primary point. But as Jesus is walking on the water here, and as we have the disciples in trouble here, I also just want to acknowledge the fact that here on Father's Day, we, well, as one guy said to me one time, you know, it seems like oftentimes the message for mothers is, you're doing a great job. Keep at it. You're important. And then six weeks later, it's Father's Day, and the message is, buck up, guys, come on, you can do a better job than that. And I get it. I get it. There's a little bit of the feminine, masculine kind of push and pull. But after we had done, kind of at least my tenure here as a pastor, after we had done a few of those, oh, good job, Mom, come on, guys, kind of Father's Day, Mother's Day kind of rhythm over a couple years, my friend came to me and said, you know, it wouldn't be bad for the dads to hear something other than, come on, let's get going. So I say that knowing that here we are in a text that on Father's Day could be sort of put forward in a way like most of the miracles and like many of Jesus' teachings as something that it seems like we're supposed to emulate as opposed to something that we're supposed to admire. Do you ever get that feel? We study who Jesus is, and sometimes the main message you can come away from is, hey, if Jesus can do it, why couldn't you? Well, in the walking on the water, I think it's kind of easy for us to separate, but this is a good moment for us to remember that difference as we're reading the Gospels. It's so easy for us to take stories about the one who came to save the world and jump all the way to the end of how can I be like him without stopping first and recognizing, okay, what does it mean to be saved by him? Now, if you were with us last week, you know that what we did is we started with this motif of misunderstanding that Mark is going to highlight a couple times. And he pointed back to the miracle from last week, the feeding of the 5,000, because a couple times, one in this passage, Mark will say they didn't get this moment because they misunderstood that moment. In other words, they misunderstood the loaves. That's why they didn't understand walking on the water. And if I were Mark, I got to be honest, I'm not sure I would have pointed to the loaves. I mean, if I'm thinking about the redundancy that we felt, Jesus was asleep in the boat. There was a storm. Ah, we're going to die. Jesus, don't you care? He wakes up and he says, man, you guys really need more faith than you've got right now. If I'm Mark, I would say they didn't understand this moment because they didn't understand that other moment on the sea. Not that they would look back and say, we don't understand what's going on with 
the loaves, which is why we miss this other moment on the boat. You see the, the dilemma, but Mark dives right into it. This isn't the only time he'll do it. He'll do it again. So we talked last week about how we kind of misunderstand what it's like to be serving with Jesus. What could the disciples have been missing in that moment last week? You're going to feel kind of a familiar vibe this week as we think about Jesus and the way that his disciples can continue to learn. Because at the end of this, like Mike just read, they misunderstood the moment. And so we're going to kind of keep that vibe going and ask the question of what is it the disciples really ought to pick up in a moment like this? And so let's just dive in. Here's the first thing that I think that the disciples need to learn. And it is an echo of what we saw last week as well. It's that Jesus is concerned with their welfare. Now, if you remember, the disciples have been doing a ton of stuff. And Jesus was concerned for them because they didn't even have any time in order to catch a breath, to catch a snack. There was no leisure even for them to get anything to eat for a little while. And so Jesus had said, all right, I want you to go ahead to the other side. And by the time they got there, the people had seen them. And, you know, I I mean, I, I watch Lord of the Rings. If you get into a boat and you're on the river, you can move faster than people who are running on the shore, right? That's the way that worked in there. But in this particular case, people apparently can run around a lake faster than the disciples can get across it because by the time they get across where they're going to have a little bit of relaxing time, it doesn't happen. They all come, they're all on board, and at the end of it, they don't have anything to eat. Boom, miracle of the feeding of the probably 10,000. But in verse 45, we see that Jesus still seems to care how his disciples are doing. Yeah, they got enough to eat. Each of them had one of the baskets full of bread and fish at the very end, which was significant in and of itself, both a provision and a lesson. But Jesus still cares, it seems, about their ability to get some rest. And so it says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So mealtime's over. His disciples are going to get into the boat. They're going to go off on their own because Jesus kind of wants to continue this burden that we had before. Now, Keith and I were talking about this. We have a sovereign God in the form of a man who takes on limitations, not that diminish his deity, but that add something to him because he's added his humanity. And this is one of those tricky moments, right? Jesus, it seemed, had the intention that they go across in order to be able to get some rest. Well, that plan was thwarted. And now we see Jesus trying again, it would appear, to give his disciples more rest. And so he goes aside to do what he knows is going to be most refreshing to him, which is to commune with his father. And in the process, it seems now like this second attempt to get the disciples some alone time, to give them a retreat, is going to be thwarted, not this time by the crowd, but this time by the waves. Verse 47, And when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And so immediately he stops praying and runs right out to save them, right? No, it doesn't appear. And about the fourth watch of the night, which would be from around three in the morning to six in the morning, he came to them. 
Now, it would seem interesting, right? Does Jesus know that the storm's about to happen? Probably. He seems to have knowledge of a lot of stuff. And so, as one of the options Keith proposed in his email, is Jesus lying? And then he sends another text. No, I know Jesus doesn't lie. But it is a good question, isn't it? Is Jesus' plan being thwarted, or is Jesus' plan being accomplished? How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in a little bit of time away. No. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you, he hath said, to you who for refuge to your campground, to your time away, to that special, you know, hotel that you get to go to, to just away from the crowd. No, it's to Jesus have fled. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, he never will never desert to his foes. The hymnist's getting it right, isn't he? Where is it that we ultimately find the greatest rest? It's not in the things that we think bring us leisure. It's in communion and fellowship with Jesus. Here's the way that Donald English made this point. He said, It becomes increasingly clear that the central theme emerging from our study so far is the nature of true faith. Parables, miracles, exorcisms do not ensure it. Religious education and background does not automatically discover it. Family ties are not enough to create it. Demons, in a curious way, know its basis and oppose it. But people in deepest need and desperation seem to find it by a variety of routes. The disciples are moving towards it because they have responded to a call and are traveling close to Jesus. Yet their failures show that they are so near, yet still not apparently there, or not permanently so. For true faith is self-risking trust in Jesus himself. How do we know that the disciples have a plight that Jesus is actually concerned about? How do we know that Jesus is concerned with not just their welfare as disciples, but ours? It's evidenced by the fact that he came to them. Now, if you want to second guess that because of the timing, well, go right ahead. It's just this isn't the only spot you're going to have to second guess. It seems that God is in the habit of making his people wait. Abraham, leave where you live and go to the land that I'm going to show you. How about you show me, and then I'll go? No, you go to the land that I will show you, but you're going to have to wait for direction. He goes, and the head of his household dies. He has to take on a a, a role within his family to be able to adopt, it seems, a nephew kind of as his own son, because he has no son. The good land goes to the nephew. Nothing goes to him. Don't worry, you'll still have a son. I don't see how it's going to happen because my nephew's just left. The only one I've got left is is my servant, and I guess that could work out. Well, my, you know, I guess my wife's got a servant, and we could use the cultural sort of rule of the day, and I could propagate this promise through her rather than through my wife. Well, we could try. Why? Because God's making him wait. 
And it's not till he's old and it's not till the moment passes that God says, now we're going to do it. And you'll laugh the way she laughed when she thought it wasn't possible. We'll just remind you of that because I want you to name him laughter. Now kill him. Who does that? The God who makes his disciples struggle on the boat until three, four, five, or six in the morning. And to be a Christian means that we trust that God, not the God of our timing, not the God of our making. We trust that God who lets us struggle and strain after we had to serve 5,000 people, after there was no time for rest, after we were on the second retreat attempt because the first one failed, now we're stuck in the middle of the boat. Where's Jesus? He's doing the thing that he knows brings needed rest. He's communing with his father and knowing what they need, then he comes to them. This is what it means to trust that God cares for us, that Jesus is concerned with our welfare, is that we take our hands off the wheel and our foot off the gas pedal and we say, God, you get to drive this where you want and how fast you want, and I'm not in charge. The second thing that disciples need to learn isn't just that Jesus is concerned, it's that when he arrives, they're safe. When he arrives, they're safe. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. One little note here at the end of verse 48 is unique to Mark. No other gospel author has this. Every other gospel author talking about it talks about it in such a way that Jesus is walking to them. But Mark Probably informed by Peter, by the way, not something we've talked about too much in the book of Mark, but Peter's probably one of the main sources of information because if you were to list out the 12, Mark wouldn't be one of the 12. We, we know this. Or maybe you're just realizing that now that Mark isn't actually one of the 12 apostles. He's getting his information from somebody else, probably like we said from Peter. And so Peter seems to be uniquely aware that Jesus was going past, it seemed. But when they, Peter and the others, saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him and they were terrified. This is one of the moments I look forward to seeing in the upcoming versions of The Chosen. (laughs) What will it look like to have these guys who have all been rough and tumble around each other, all 12 collectively terrified? Not a moment we've seen yet. I'll be interested to see how they kind of work it out. But I think we can say this. At this moment, because of the waves and because of the ghost, they don't feel safe. They don't feel like they're okay. But Jesus' disciples must learn that they're safe when he's near. And so verse 50, immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. That language, I'm here. So you're okay? That's the biblical narrative of how God seems to work with his leaders. You know that? I was with a group from the Crisis Pregnancy Center in Cleveland because their executive director, who you guys have kind of met and heard from, Bob Hershey, 
he's going to be taking over a regional role. And so they're, they're in the midst of some transitions. The woman in charge of their educational program, uh, she's handing it off to someone else. The head nurse is handing it off to someone else. And now the executive director is handing his role off to kind of an interim director for now, who used to be in charge of their development. And so Bob asked, would I come to yesterday and, and share something with them? And I decided I'd tell them a little bit of a story from Acts chapter 16. Remember in Acts chapter 16, it was when Paul had just gotten done with his first missionary journey. He was up in Galatia and he planted some churches and the churches had a lot of Gentiles. And so there was a question, do the Gentiles have to be Jewish in order to be Christians? They all gathered in Jerusalem. They answered the question, no, but here's a few things you could do to help the Jews be comfortable. They wrote a letter, sent it back to the people in Galatia. And when Paul delivered that letter, he had a question, where to next? And so in Acts chapter 16, Paul wants to go north. And it says the Spirit of God said, no. And he thought, oh, well, then I'll go here. And it says God again says, no. And then Paul has a vision. He has a vision of a man and another continent, really, over in the whole column of Greece, saying, this is where I want you to come. Come to Macedonia and preach the gospel to us. Now, Paul had gotten rid of his relationship with Barnabas. He had picked up a new guy named Silas. He had gotten rid of John Mark, who was his young accomplice, potentially the guy who's writing all this, by the way. And they had gotten a new guy named Timothy. So we've got Silas and Timothy both looking at Paul and asking the question of, hey, are we ready? And Paul's like, yeah, we're going this way. Oh, we're not. Oh, we're going that way. Oh, we're not. Hey, I had a vision. God told us we're supposed to go over there. And Silas and Timothy got to be thinking, oh, this is going to be great. All right, let's go over there. They go to Philippi and they get beaten up. They go to Thessalonica and they get beaten up. They go to Berea and they get beaten up. They go to Athens and they get mocked. Finally, they arrive in Corinth. And you know what God tells them? I'm with you. Paul has got to be feeling like an idiot because he went wrong He went the wrong way twice, and then every way he's followed God, it's led to beatings and persecutions, has got to be wondering, now that we're arriving in Corinth, what am I supposed to do next? And God tells him the same thing that he tells Joshua. Hey, it's okay. Moses is dead. That's fine. I'm with you. If I'm with you, you're okay. Paul, if everybody's against you, if I'm with you, you're okay. And the disciples in the middle of a boat crying out because the waves are too much, it's too dark, it's too scary, and that's a ghost, now have to hear from Jesus saying, if I'm with you, it's okay, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. Now I had my list, there's my list. Isaiah 41, who gives the nations Who gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot? Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and the last. I am he. You hear that that self-identification kind of language from God's lips? Before me, Isaiah 43, before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Same language, God thumping his chest, God pointing to his badge and saying, it says God, there is nobody else, it's just me. Isaiah 52, my people should know my name, therefore in the day that they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. 
And all of that is an echo of the first time that God talked to the first one who seemed to be afraid. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And when Moses later on says, I don't know this is going to work. I'm not very good at speaking and talking and the whole putting together of words thing. That's just not really my forte. God says, come on, man, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute and deaf and seeing and blind? Is it not I, the Lord? When God wants to get people's attention, he doesn't just talk about what he does. He talks about who he is. And the main thing disciples need to know to be assured that he's concerned of their welfare is to know this. They are safe in his presence. Is what Moses needed. He is the message that Isaiah comes across. And dad, here's the one. Come on, let's make sure we do well. Kind of charge. And it comes from a woman named Sally Michael. She said, what do you typically read in children's curriculum about the feeding of the 5,000? The thing that got misunderstood? Hey, kids, the point of the story is share your lunch. That's good morals, but it's not really what we need today. It's bad theology and especially bad exegesis. She says, we need Christ. Our kids need Christ. Dads, if there's correction in the home, your voice needs to be there in order for the correction to stick. It can't be just listen to mama. But the correction to stick and really make a difference needs to not just be the, hey, see what you're supposed to do, go do it. See, the, if this kid had the, the food and he gave it, so share your lunch, be good, do the right thing, take the, the morals and just let me hit them with you. Hit you with them. The other would look weird. <laughs> Our kids need Christ, who is mighty to save when they sin, who walks on water when they're confused, and who speaks to winds and waves when they're afraid. Little one, I know know you failed. I know you're scared. But we've got Jesus, and so we're okay. That, more than share your lunch, is the voice they need. But if we've got Jesus, you can share your lunch. If you've got Jesus, you don't have to be afraid. If you've got Jesus, you're okay. Because otherwise, we're raising pagans, not Christians. Let me put it in a little chart for you to see. All right? We're going to talk morality versus theology. The morality of this word world has one sort of message. It's row harder. Why? Because there's one problem, and that's your weakness. And so if the main problem is your weakness, then the message is row harder because the solution is more effort, and the result is the futility that the disciples are feeling. This is why every other religion fails. And as believers, to be honest, it's why I am ashamed when I hear people taking a message about a historical 
entrance of the God-man into the world and saying, oh, like all the other miracles we can't really understand, these are just analogies. They're just sort of, you know, figures or metaphors because those are Old Testament myths. Frankly, that Christianity is nothing more than a current day myth because it is just this religion using the Bible. You just need to row harder because these things are just encouragements. There's like Aesop's fables or any other good thing we could read. That's all the Bible is. I will tell you this. That Christianity is not Christianity. That Christianity is a humanism that sees at the very essence of things that we start with and end with what people have got on their own. And that doesn't work. But Christianity is not row harder Our theology is that we trust Christ because our problem is unbelief and our solution is a simple faith that then looks to Jesus and that brings safety. And at the end of the day, guys, let's not make little moral humanists out of our kids. Let's not live like little moral humanists that when we encounter problems, we just think of ways to row harder through life. Let's admit our weakness And let's not say, we got to fix it. Let's figure out how to trust Christ who already sees the answer. Because dads, we're safe. Because Jesus is with us. Now, this is where Michael stopped reading. And if we pause after verse 51, we see Jesus gets into the boat and immediately the same miracle seems to be repeated. The winds cease, and Mark gives the diagnosis. Do they they get it? Do they feel it? Do they feel that sense that when God walks across the water to them, that it's God who just walked across the water? It doesn't seem like they get it, does it? It doesn't seem like they get it, and Mark says, no, they were astounded, but not worshipful, for they didn't understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. How hard would that have to have been for Peter at that moment to have shared that? John's sitting there dictating his thoughts and saying, you didn't see it, Mark? And Peter's like, no, man, we were dumb. We were hard and dumb and stupid. I mean, like, but God used to feed people in the Old Testament right? Yeah, the manna, I know. Yeah, but not just the manna, like when Elijah went to be with the lady, and she was a widow, and she didn't have any food. And yeah, yeah, and then just the food kept going. Yeah, like that's what God does. God feeds his people. And so you just saw Jesus feed a whole mess of people, and you were like, wow, that's an impressive guy. That's all you guys got out of this? The Old Testament talks about God, the one who divided the waters, before he fed his people in charge of all the chaos of the world is depicted by the seas and the the beasts and everything. And God's the one who's said to be over top of all that. And Peter's going, I know. I told you our hearts were hardened, so drop it. And we could mock him except for how much has God showed us and how quickly do our hearts harden. How quickly are we like that little lump of Play-Doh that's nice and soft and squishy and you leave it on the counter for about five minutes and now I'm buying new Play-Doh because that stuff is just ruined, man. 
I know, Mike. I know, Mike. Mike has a good recipe, I'm sure, for homemade Play-Doh so that you don't waste your money serving Hasbro or whoever makes it. I don't know. Psalm 77, 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen and you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. That's a psalm, Peter. He remembered what God did before and you've got God right with you. Hard hearts. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the seas, Isaiah 43, a path in the mighty waters. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of gold. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. It springs forth. Do you not perceive it? See, this moment, at this moment, the disciples have a question they need to be able to think through. The question is, Will Jesus be enough? Or did they need that retreat? Did they need that respite? Did they need that time away? Did they need a little bit more food? Is Jesus enough? Because if Jesus is enough, then what's coming next, they're good. Because what's coming next is that once again, they're invited into his ministry. Verse 53. When they'd crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside. They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. We've already seen it could happen, right? On the way, the woman touched his garment and she's healed. The 12-year ailment, she's good. People heard about that and that's all they want to do. We We just want to touch him. We don't even have to talk to him. We know his capacity. These are people, do they want to follow him? We don't know. They got problems and they want him to fix them. And if you're the disciples, you can be thinking one of two things. I'm still tired. I was rowing a boat all night long. I I need rest. I need food. I need time away before we can do this. Or you can be thinking, man, I'm with Jesus. (laughs) If I'm with Jesus, I'm okay. If I'm with Jesus, I got everything I need. And at some point, Peter was able to write this. So good news. Fast forward to the end. His heart softened. He learned what he needed to learn in order to be able to be equipped to do what God had called him to do. And dads, if I got a message for you, that's ultimately what it is. Parenting's overwhelming. Mike? Amen, there it is. Grandparenting is overwhelming. Bill? Yeah, it might be. As following Jesus is tough. And too often we feel tired and we feel hungry and we don't always feel like we've got enough for what it seems like God's called us to. But if we remember, we're invited because we're equipped. Jesus, their teacher, 
is endowed, Donald English says, with the kind of power they normally expect only of the God revealed in their scriptures. For them, it seems the penny has not yet dropped. They still treat each miraculous event as self-contained. Insofar as they ascribe it to Jesus, they've not yet learned to look within and behind him to discern the source, a perception which will at once open their eyes to who Jesus is. This may account for the manner of Jesus' address to them on the water. It is I. A statement reminiscent of Exodus 3 or Isaiah 41, 43, or 52. How much clearer can Jesus make it without removing the one thing for which he looks, which he seeks to stimulate but cannot and will not impose a trusting faith in himself alone? Let me pray to that end. Father, on this day where I and the other dads are feeling it, we're feeling our weakness, we're feeling our sense of, Lord, we, we need more in order to do what the more that you've called us to. Father, I thank you that the promise that you're with us the promise that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that's been demonstrated in the gift of Jesus. The promise that you wouldn't leave us as orphans. And the history that every leader you called to lead needed the reassurance that you'd be with them. Father, in that heart, I pray for the dads who feel like they're struggling against the oars, the dads who feel like they're without sleep. Lord, I pray for all of us who have tasks before us and we feel the limitations, we feel the blisters, we feel the strain and the struggle and the exhaustion. And I pray for a simple faith that says if you're with us, it's enough. And I pray for the miracle, Lord, that you'd show us how that's true. For the dads and for everyone who's been pining after some other break, some other escape, some other way of drowning the pain or finding comfort, Lord, I pray that you would help us recognize we don't need what we think we need because if we have you, we have enough. Lord, I pray that that would strengthen and encourage us that we would have a boldness not to find all the answers but to point those in need to you I ask this in Jesus name amen we're going to stand and sing together and as we do during this time Keith's going to lead us in communion so if you still need some of the elements I'm not sure he'll be around to distribute those to us